Welcome to Creative Place, the podcast for creative placemakers. I'm your host, Andrea Orlando. How does creative placemaking help us welcome the newcomer? We interviewed Jordan Crumroy of Welcoming America and Janine Bryant of Facilitate Movement at the 2019 Creative Placemaking Leadership Summit for the South and Appalachia. They talk about their work in communities that wish to be more welcoming to immigrants and what it feels like to be engaged at this moment in history. So Jordan, tell me about Welcoming America and what you do. Sure. So Welcoming America is a nonprofit. We're based out of Decatur, Georgia, which is in Atlanta. We are an international organization focused on helping communities become more inclusive places. And so we do this by way of connecting local leaders, connecting cities, counties, and nonprofits together to share best practices, to learn from each other, and to push forward policies and programs. At the end of the day, we believe that when communities welcome newcomers, they're healthier and more vibrant places for everybody. And so that's really our goal is how do we how do we do that? How do we welcome newcomers in communities throughout the globe? And where are you in the United States? Do you, uh, can you tell me how many cities and towns you're in? Yeah, so we work in over 100 communities in the United States. While we're based in Decatur, Georgia, we have members from you know, Anchorage, Alaska, to small town Idaho, to large town California, New York's. So we're, we're, we're in many, many communities, both small and big throughout the United States. And then actually today launched our international membership program. And so now we have international members as well that are part of the welcoming network. And what brings you to Creative Placemaking Summit? Sure, so we are excited to be here working in creative placemaking and as well as having received a grant through ArtPlace to do some of this work. We are here to learn about what folks are doing in different areas of the South so that we can take those back to our members that are looking for innovative approaches to help build community and build bridges. Uh, We're also here presenting in a session where we have um, some folks Uh, that are members of ours to talk about their work um, in their communities as well. So we're here both to to present about our work and how how this intersects with creative placemaking, how creative placemaking can be a really powerful tool in bridging communities and bringing people together, and also to to learn from folks that that are doing the work in different ways. So this is a great segue to, we have somebody else here with us, mm-hmm. Janine Bryant. Hi, Janine. Hi, how are you all? Good, good. So um, Jordan, can you tell me a little bit about Janine? Or Janine, you could talk about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so I am a full-time consultant. I live and work primarily in Charlotte, North Carolina. And my work takes me across the country thinking about and grappling with how our cultural context can inform how we live and work together. And how long have you been associated with Welcoming America? Almost since its inception. I was sharing earlier that Welcoming America was one of the first structured programs in which we could talk really clearly and openly about immigrant integration and what those practices and policies look like on the ground. And it was the first organization that I think gave up, that gave many organizations, so I worked many years ago at a museum, it gave many organizations like the museum that I worked at 
a framework in which we could have a really purposeful conversation that could lead to people not only having uh, empathy towards each other, and particularly towards uh, immigrants and communities, but to also think really purposefully about what their community was doing to create welcoming spaces or to not create a welcoming space. And so Charlotte was one of the first cities that helped pilot the Welcome to Shelbyville video that I think is probably still featured on you, you all's, uh, one of the first program models that they had to do public programming for immigrant integration. What is Shel Shelbyville? Is it a neighborhood in Charlotte? No. I think Jordan should probably say <laughs> <laughs> No, but it has a lot of shared Southern context. Yeah, um, yeah. So Shelbyville is a community in, in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and really Welcoming America was birthed out of Nashville. So at the time, our, our founder was, was working there doing community organizing and, and saw this need in a community that had had rapid demographic shifts. Um, and with that rapid demographic change, a lot of tensions around it. So the Welcome to Shelbyville is actually an, a, a DVD um, that, uh, like a physical DVD that we still have, <laughs> that back when people had DVD players, that really highlights kind of the, the transition of this community and the importance of um, doing community dialogues and bringing people together and, and, and getting people, first of all, to talk about discomfort, to talk about their fears, um, to ask questions of, of people that they would deem as other. And, and, and through, that, through, through that process in Tennessee came the development of really of welcoming America. And so those are our, those are our early roots uh, about 10 years ago because we're celebrating our 10th year anniversary this year. So that's, it's, it's been a minute, uh, but still very, very much connected. And we still have the DVDs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Jordan, you and I were talking earlier and you said that Janine Bryant is here because the work that she's doing in Charlotte is a really good example of how to integrate creative placemaking into the, the work and the mission of Welcoming America. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna start with you. So um, what is, what's happening in Charlotte that's a really good creative placemaking? Mm -hmm. So I think, um, first of all, there's, there's a lot happening and Janine can speak to the, the specifics of it. But I mean, I think that, you know, even just this morning, when Janine presented about her work, I think that what makes good creative placemaking is kind of a recipe of multiple things. I think one of the crucial elements is kind of an honesty and self-reflection to be able to look at it and say, are we not just not doing harm? Like, what are we actually doing good? And I think that Janine's approach is a critical ingredient in that healthy recipe. So I think, first of all, that, you know, a lot of good creative placemaking, I think, starts with intentionality and, and being self-reflective, knowing your weaknesses, knowing your audience, knowing your strengths. Um, and I think that through her work in Charlotte, that's really, that's really exemplified. And I think that that transcends specific programs. And I think that really, um, when you look at long-term effects of creative placemaking, I think that it, it kind of boils back to whether or not um, the intentionality and, and the, the knowledge was there at the beginning. So I think that that's a huge strength that carries projects to success. I think other components of her work that have been really compelling, I mean, I think that the, the, that the exhibit that she worked on is extremely powerful in recognizing that there is no one, there is no one story, there is no one box, um, that we are, are complicated uh, creatures that live and move within multiple realms. And, 
So her work in, in highlighting stories of Latinos throughout the South, I think is critical. And I, and I think because especially for a lot of us, when we're talking about diversity, it's, it's easy to get like, okay, well, did we get the, did we get the Latino? Did we get the, did we get the white girl? Did we get the black guy? Did we get X, Y, and Z? And I think that that's in some ways natural to start from that. And I think that's fine if you're starting there, but the question is how do we move move through that? And I think that the museum exhibit was a really good example of, of going deeper into identities and starting conversations around that. Jadine, first of all, tell me what is the name of the museum for our listeners? Yeah. So many years ago, I worked at Levine Museum of the New South, it's based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and looks at how to use history to build community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that it is in reference to the exhibit that was designed actually many years ago in partnership with the Atlanta History Center and the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And that original product project design was called Latino New South and resulted in ultimately an exhibit called New Evolution. Oh yes, got it, got it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a long it's a longer story there, but to Jordan's point, uh, I think that recipe that she's talking about um, and how how you learn to as with any good recipe, how you learn to supplement with what you have mm-hmm. in the cabinet is an important part of community building and being willing to, as I called it in the presentation, willingness to, to look at your wrongs and um, to lean into your failures so that you can really start to unpack, well, why didn't that work? And to, to ask yourself those questions, not just count it off. Um, I think that's the beauty of having a partnership where you're, um, where you invite community voice into the process. I think that in the South particularly, as we sit here in Columbia, South Carolina, I think there is a long-term history and it invites us to do one of two things. We can uh, avoid talking about it, which is what often happens, or we can really delve deeply into it and see if it can lend us some lessons so that we don't repeat it in the future. I think oftentimes in the South we resist that. And so, so much of my work, both at the museum and now in my own consultancy, is to look at the power that's inherent in our history and to see how much of it goes deep into the ground and what we can do to unpack that, uncover it, and use it and leverage it to build a stronger community and connectivity. Um, It takes a lot of guts to do it. Mm -hmm. What are some of the tools that you use to get people to open up and have that conversation? So the first tool that we used for the, the first tool that we used in any big way was the listening sessions that were a part of Latino New South, and so we listened over, across three states: North Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. And we did that really purposefully because, as we talk about demographic change, rapid demographic change, those were the communities that were seeing a sharp rise in Latino populations over the past ten years, and they saw such an incredible increase of uh, Spanish-speaking populations from across many different countries and many different cultural backgrounds, but we found that there was actually very little going on that would create welcome. And so one of the reasons that I think in Charlotte, Atlanta, and Birmingham, these three cities were high urban areas that had a willingness to examine the demographic change, not only as, um, as Jordan mentioned, diversity, as in literal numbers of people coming, but to really think about the process of inclusion. What does it look like to literally include people into the cultural fabric of a community? What does it look like when their identities and their, um, their cultural, both material and uh, immaterial, is folded into the fabric of the community and welcomed? And you can see it, mm-hmm. and everybody knows it. What does that look like? 
And so we went to these different states and had these listening sessions. And that you can that tool is welcome. Anybody's welcome to find that. It's on it's online. It's called What's the Big Idea? That's the framework for how to use that tool. And we literally asked communities in multiple languages to help inform us of the big ideas around their experience of becoming um, a part of the New South fabric. What does that look like? What does it mean? And one of the things we learned really quickly is that we didn't have much of a framework for how to do this because it, there hasn't been a cross-state lines, wide-scale demographic uh, examination that involved, involved and invited constant participatory angles. And so we had to, we were, we were definitely building that ship as we were flying it. <laughs> and we learned a lot. But that's one of the reasons why one of the first things that I share is that we, you know, failure of a framework is okay. It's okay if you don't have a framework necessarily because sometimes your framework actually limits you and it keeps you from engaging authentically. But if you're willing to learn on the ground and, and create an iterative process, you might find that you can discover new things. And, and how are you using art or creativity? What is the art in this? Yeah, I think we looked at art a couple of ways. Uh, one is that we invited artistic presence in the process of the uh, exhibition development from the get-go. Um, and we also looked at how people could creatively engage with the exhibit. So there were, in many museum spaces, you know, people typically think of the object that is the catalyst or the, or the experience of walking through and reading the text as the catalyst. For us, the catalyst was really the people. So we had to invite stories and we had to invite um, artistic and creative expression because we found that no matter what, that transcended the, the, the literal text. So we couldn't always get the exact translation right of what people were saying, but what we could do is have art as a catalyst moment. And so local artists from each of the communities, each of the three communities have helped inform not only what you see as a part of the actual experience, but literally there were local artists whose pieces are put, are put in as a part of the featured exhibit um, everywhere it travels to. And you said something in the session that I, that I attended this morning that I thought was really interesting. You talked about the difference between welcoming people as they are in the particular moment and expecting them to assimilate. Can you explain that sure. for our listeners? Sure. So, so many times when people use the word integration and they talk about immigrant integration or creating a welcome, what they really mean is assimilation. And they mean, and by assimilate, they mean look like, feel like, talk like me. So that doesn't mean look like, feel like, talk like you. That means how can you mirror what I'm doing and how can you reflect what, make, what feels safe, comfortable, and known and familiar to me. And for me, as a black woman in the South, that's sometimes the opposite of what it means to be who I am authentically. And so a lot of times we need to say that out loud because of so, many, so many times we've created um, spaces that we think are welcoming, but really it's just a reflection of who we are. It's not a reflection of what true inclusion looks like. And inclusion is a long process. You know, it's a process of paying attention, of being intentional, of being patient with each other and deliberately creating spaces to build bridges. And assimilation is the exact opposite of that. So in, in the space I think of creative placemaking, I think there has to be a willingness to really consider what inclusion looks like and how do you have all voices as a part of any kind of project, experience, and grounding so that that becomes the experience. The inclusion is the experience. What's one of the most surprising things that has happened in this work that you've done? Well, we haven't talked about on the table, but I think um, that the, another project where we kind of learned through, through creating spaces for community dialogue, one thing we learned is that if you invite people to action, they will act. 
if you invite people to talk, they will talk. If you invite them to act, they will act. And so this year we hosted a dialogic placemaking experience, heavily influenced by local artists of Charlotte. And at one of the experiences of the local YMCA, it was the JCC, so the Jewish Community Center, partnered with a YMCA that was across town, about 20 minutes away. And that YMCA is primarily, primarily visited by people who uh, are Latino, are considered self-identified as Latino. So here we are having, they had a great conversation. Uh, they had about 75 people at their table, at their tables. And the two days afterwards was the shooting in Pittsburgh at the synagogue. And the same people who had been together in community and talked about what could they do to build community, those same people who we had previously not met, suddenly realized that they had an opportunity to show up for each other. And they co-sponsored a vigil and within 48 hours, hosted a, co-hosted a vigil together in which both communities demonstrated their care for each other. Wow, that's beautiful. That's a wonderful. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And it shows how quickly, if you're intentional about it, it shows how quickly you can translate an idea to literal creative collaboration and, and real welcome. And I think that that, I mean, what a powerful, I think, example of just what can come out of bringing people together in a room. I mean, and, and it sounds crazy that in 2019 we would be talking about the power of being together, but there really is that, you know, when you bring people physically together, there's a lot of progress that happens in that and a lot of um, recognizing the humanity that happens. And I think sometimes for some of us that's frustrating because <laughs> it's like, what, you know, why do we have to bring people together for justice to move forward? Um, but what we know is that that's a crucial component. And I think that that's um, where creative placemaking can really excel is, is utilizing and leveraging those moments. Yeah, that's a, that's a powerful, powerful moment. So I wanna talk about the exercise that, that we did in your session because it was a real, eye-opener for me so you divided the room into teams and you gave us bags and each bag had puzzle pieces and each team was given a minute to assemble the puzzle and long story short nobody completed the puzzle because each bag didn't have a complete puzzle we would have had the teams would have had to collaborate with each other to trade pieces so that we would have the complete puzzle. So what is it that you try to convey with that exercise? Well, first of all, I have to say I stole that exercise, as any good facilitator does. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, what I realized, and the original facilitator um, did not do the debrief that we had in the room, but in the course of that experience, what, what I typically find is that people who are in spaces of, of community building often do the opposite when forced against a deadline. So instead of actually building community, what we do is we become incredibly siloed and competitive, uh, and sometimes ruthless, uh, in our efforts to, to do what we think is right. Particularly if it's in response to someone we think is an authority. And so in that room, in, that, in those moments, I represent a certain amount of authority. What we find is that people uh, will jump in in their rush to, to work against the deadline. They don't communicate with each other. They don't check in with each other. Um, and ultimately, they, it results in something that may uh, be disjointed and incomplete. Now, we had all the pieces that we needed in the room, 
but we didn't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's often how we work. And or we think we, you know, we checked off one piece, we built one corner, uh, and we say we did our part, but we don't check in with each other to see if we could have did so much better if we had just had a willingness to collaborate and to be intentional, um, and even to, to question some assumptions that are in the room, like is that time constraint real? Do we have to do it the way that we were told that we had to do it? And I think we've created some constructs for ourselves in these spaces of community building that don't allow us to use the creative, collaborative energy that is so inherent in how we would work if we just didn't keep working against the models that exist. Yeah, yeah. What was surprising to me was that, you know, this is a group of people, of community leaders, who uh, think of themselves as creative place makers. They think of themselves as being creative and uh, thinking outside the box. And it's amazing to me how we all, like you said, just did fall in line and just follow your instructions. Do don't worry, it happens in every city. It happens in every city. So um, I think, you know, we might be motivated by really strong, we might be really compelled by really strong notions of what it means to build community. Uh, and sometimes we have to disrupt what those very strong notions are because they we could be inherently hurting ourselves um, and actually dismantling the very thing we're trying to do. And it takes a moment. I mean, I think a lot of people are surprised to realize that, they, that even though they may consider themselves a leader in this work or maybe an expert in their field, it takes a moment to realize that we get bound by the same tethers that, that have often hurt our real efforts of community building. And we can be short-sighted and impatient with each other, and that's the opposite of collaboration and engagement. So what's in the future for you, Janine? One of the most exciting things I'm working on right now um, is an opportunity to build a quote-unquote retreat space for some practitioners across the country. And we'll be coming together in New Orleans and um, inviting each other to be both personal and professional in one space and to bring our authentic selves into the experience of, of our work. And a lot of people might say that, you know, bring your whole self to work, but they don't mean it. And so this will be the, the time where we actually do mean it. And uh, there's a lot of people who do diversity, inclusion, equity, and access work, and they never get a chance to relax and bring their, their whole selves to work. So this is an opportunity to skill build equitably, hear many voices, round ourselves in the experience of decolonizing our ways of working and our ways of thinking about our work and really giving a space to hear each other and see each other as whole beings. Have you identified who's going to attend or? Yeah, it's open on Eventbrite, so people just sign up. <laughs> and what's the name of your company? My name of my company is Facilitate Movement um, and you can find it at www.facilitatemovement.com. Excellent. And so Welcoming America has just launched international, so mm-hmm. what is in the future for your organization, uh, either domestically or internationally? Yeah, the, so the, the, the launch of international membership is really, um, really, really huge. Our founder actually, who started Welcoming America back, going back to the Tennessee roots, moved to Germany this past summer to really to really spearhead this international expansion. So th- so that is really really big for us. We're really excited to see where where we go and, and where this international work takes us and what we know is that these histories of oppression and sustained and continued practices 
aren't unique to the United States in a lot of ways. Um, they are very much evident in, in, in most places. And so we're excited to begin really shepherding that work along beyond the United States as well. Um, I do have to say I'm particularly excited about a Metro Atlanta program that we um, have been working on for a few years called the One Region Initiative. And this is essentially we, we recognized that we had all these cities and counties pushing forward their own, their own welcoming work. But what we wanted to do was approach it from a regional lens, like we would transportation or water. And so uh, for over a year, we did listening sessions and steering committee meetings to create a regional strategic plan. What would it look like to have a welcoming region? What sort of things would tell us that that, that that region is welcoming so that people don't have to worry about whether they're in this city or the next? And at the end of it, produced a regional strategic plan with 59 recommendations. And so this is something we've got eight cities um, in and beyond Metro Atlanta that have signed on to it, as well as some counties, uh, and are really excited to be pushing forward this work in the Metro Atlanta area. And I think relevant to our conversation today, one of the things that is, is critical in that is a communications campaign. Um, and so we have a design firm that is creating communications materials, everything from yard signs, stickers, t-shirts, to social media messagings that, that our partners can take and really promote in their communities to, to start dialogue in a lot of cases, um, and in a lot of cases to reframe that into a positive dialogue. So the One Region Initiative for me is just personally really um, really exciting to see that in our own backyard taking shape and, and moving that along through implementation. So between the, uh, the regional work and the international work, we're, we're pretty excited for, for new things on the horizon. Excellent. One more question. What does it feel like to be involved in this work at this moment in history? This is where you have the, the big pause on the recording. <laughs> you want to go first? You want me to go first? I don't know. I've been thinking about this. There, there's a concept in dialogic engagement. So I'm a full-time, I do a lot of facilitation for dialogic engagement across communities. And there's this concept of being able to hold ambiguity and to hold ambiguity as a value. And so that's something that I've carried with me into all of this work and all of my engagement strategies is the idea that if you can hold a space of ambiguity and realize that there are two truths that are wildly divergent and they can exist at the same time. Yes. If you can hold <laughs> that, then you can carry forth this work and still have integrity without feeling like you need to stake your, your foot in the ground and stomp and rant or rave. You don't have to. If you can just realize that those experiences from whatever perspective they are equally as valid and there may be a common ground that we can meet at but it's going to take some work so that idea of holding ambiguity is it's really centered to the work of I think authentic engagement um, and it keeps you from silencing the experiences of others thank you I feel like going after Janine is an unfair. I feel like <laughs> through that's okay through talking with her and listening today I'm like there's no reason for me to even have a response after anything Janine says because it's so much more poetic and powerful and succinct than I will ever be. So there is that. Um, well, then I'll but I can say still answer the question if you want me to. No pressure. You know, no pressure I mean, at all. Well, let me, let me say it maybe in a different way. I think as a white person, 
doing integration work. What I'm really excited by is other people of privilege waking up a little bit to our privilege. I'm a little frustrated that it took what it took to get us there, but I'm glad that it's happening and I am hopeful that it'll continue to happen. And I think what we're seeing now, even beyond this work here in this room, but I think what we're seeing is people are waking up to a lot of things. Um, I think they're waking up to their interdependence on each other. I think they're waking up to um, the differences between each other, which I think is something that we've historically not wanted to look at. And I think that we're starting to realize that common ground isn't always um, warm and fuzzy um, and that it can be really painful to get there. So I think that those are the things that give me a lot of hope. And I don't think that this is, you know, I, I think that we're, we're seeing this in so many areas of, of communal life together in the United States. This isn't just about immigration, this is really just about humanity. And I think us waking up and recognizing our humanity and recognizing the way in which we've unchecked it for a long time gives me, gives me a lot of hope. So um, it feels heavy, it feels light at the same time. I think that it is, I would say I have been in more of a state of optimism because people are suddenly really, people of privilege are suddenly really uncomfortable with, with things and how their privilege has gotten them places. And I think the more disdainful and offensive that the rhetoric has become, the more that I'm seeing people stand up and say, we've got to do something. And so I'm really grateful that we've gotten there little frustrated that it took us all this to get there but I think that there's some there's some positive outcomes sure sure I think that's the beauty of the arts process hmm. is, is that artists I found are always welcoming to how messy a process is it's inherently messy um, and I think that movement building is messy and to your point I think we're just getting to a place but we understand it, it can't all be neat and it can't all be polite uh, and certainly can't all be PC, but it can be collaborative and it can be engaged and it can mean that we bring our authentic selves. And so our, these catalyst moments together is what builds power for real change. Yeah. Well, I, I hate to say goodbye. I, I, I would prefer to say, let's do this again. <laughs> let's figure out where we're gonna meet and, and have another conversation at some point and thank you so much for taking the time out to do this we're we're eating our lunch and <laughs> we're taking notes and checking our phones and trying to do a hundred things at once at, at this summit but thanks again and and enjoy the rest of your summit thank you for having us yeah thank you so much You've been listening to Creative Place, produced by the National Consortium for Creative Placemaking. Follow us at CP Communities or visit our show page at cpcommunities.org. Bye for now.